Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. If you listen to the last episode of the show with economist Nouriel Dr. Doom Rabini, you will, I'm sure, be delighted to know that this one is going to be a whole lot more optimistic. Aging is inevitable, but science allows us to measure our biological age and provides strategies to slow down and even reverse the aging process. The vast majority of how we age is directly related to choices we make every day, how and what we eat, exercise and the quality of our sleep, to name a few factors. Dr Morgan Levine is head of the Aging in Living Systems Lab at Yale, and she joined HowTo Academy to share her insights into the cutting-edge developments in the science of aging and longevity. It's the subject of her new book, True Age. She was in conversation with David Malone. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the HowTo Academy. My name is David Malone. It's my pleasure this evening to talk to Dr. Morgan Levine, who is the head of the Aging and Living Systems Lab at Yale University. Afternoon, Morgan. Thank you, David, for having me. And you have just written True Age, cutting edge research to help turn back the clock. Turning back the clock has been something people have dreamt about doing for millennia. How much progress have we made recently in actually turning back the clock? I don't know if we've made a ton of progress in actually being able to do it, but I think we've made a ton of progress in actually approaching this as real science and not just as science fiction or kind of pseudoscience snake oil. Um, So there are real universities and real science labs around the world working on actually understanding the biology and mechanisms involved in the aging process. So I think we are potentially on a precipice for actually having real solutions, but perhaps not maybe the ones that people would like to have yet. <laughs> um, all right, well, look, you sort of the framework for your work, you, you introduced very early in the book, you say, look, there's a difference between your chronological age and what you call your biological age. Tell us a bit more about what you mean by that and why it's important, because it, it's sort of the framework for everything else you say, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, if you ask people, what's your age or how old are you? I would think almost everyone's going to give you their chronological age because that's how we measure aging in our society. It's the time since birth. And we tend to associate this chronological age or chronological time with things like risk of disease or loss of physical or cognitive functioning or any of these things that we associate and negatively stigmatize aging with. Um, But in reality, it's actually not the chronological time that is driving those things. It's not that you just randomly have an increased chance, you know, as time goes on, but it's the way that our bodies and our systems are biologically changing over that time. And I think the important thing to know is that this doesn't happen at a constant rate and it doesn't happen at the same rate for everyone or even within our own body for our different organs. And so can we actually find a way to better better measure aging by measuring this kind of divergence in terms of our biology over time? And the answer is yes, isn't it? I mean, that, that is your work specifically, is measuring. So give us a, a, a clue as to how you go about it and, and, and how we can all go about it. Yeah, so um, probably for a few decades, people have been really interested in, is there a way to measure this thing that we are considering biological age? 
Um, and people propose all sorts of different ways to do it. And I would say there's still not an agreed upon way to measure biological aging. And even the way that we're doing it now is continually evolving and improving over time. So you can do something as simple and as basic as just figuring out how many kind of deficits you have. So there's actually a little quiz you can take that's, you know, how many diseases do you have? How many, you know, things do you have problems doing? And it'll give you kind of an overall score. For a lot of people, that's not that useful because if you're still in a fairly healthy state, you're going to, you know, have this kind of lower effect with how well you can actually score on that. So there's more kind of advanced ways where we can take lots and lots of biological data or physiological data or even molecular and cellular data from people and using kind of the power of machine learning and AI actually feed it into these and make predictions about people. So either predicting how long it looks like someone's probably been alive. So, you know, even if they've been alive 40 years, maybe their biology looks more like someone who's been alive, let's say 50 years or hopefully 30 years. But we can also make predictions about how much longer it looks like their remaining life expectancy would be, which is probably a more useful measure to have. Hmm. And do you do this by looking for sort of markers in, in blood samples or saliva samples? And how, how do you actually do it? Yeah, so um, you can do this almost in any type of sample. Traditionally, it's done in blood or saliva. Saliva and blood actually share a lot of the same types of cells. So you get pretty similar answers depending on whichever one you do. Um, and the types of markers that we're using in kind of the most cutting edge and most agreed upon ways of doing this are what, what are called epigenetic measures. So we're looking at something that's called DNA methylation. And what that just means is, you know, people know genetics, right? Where you have your sequence of A, C, G, and T. Um, but epigenetics is a chemical modification. It's basically telling a cell how to use its genome. So which parts it should use, which parts it should repress. And the cool thing is that it, even though let's say a skin cell and a brain cell have exactly the same genome, they're clearly different cell types. And that's because they have this different epigenetic program. So they're using different parts of the genome to create their kind of state or, or um, phenotype. The problem is that this really nice program declines or, or gets messed up with age. So the parts that should be used are then repressed and, and vice versa. And basically what we can do is we can look at the pattern of these little chemical marks throughout your genome. So look at hundreds of thousands of these. And so you have the pattern, let's say in your blood of someone who is looks this age or someone who has this amount of remaining life expectancy. Right. So it's like, um, I suppose, the cells that turn into your teeth everything's switched off except making teeth. They don't want a, a cell yeah. in your tooth to suddenly think, okay, hey, I'm going to make a toe. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but even yeah. amongst that, though, in the teeth cells, when you're little, the, the bit that's switched on is making baby teeth. And then presumably at, what, age four or something, that switches off. So that section of DNA is still there, but it just says ignore this. And then it yeah. switches on the adult teeth, right? Yeah, I, I like to think of it as kind of the operating system of your cell. It's like this beautiful system that tells the cell what pieces to use to do all the jobs that it was basically made to do. But the problem is that program gets a little messed up. And then we do find that with aging cells lose, quote, their identity. So they're less distinguishable from each other because the pieces that, I, you know, that characterize certain cell types kind of get muddled with aging. And it's a little bit harder 
to kind of say, this is your job as a cell and, and we can see your profile. They all kind of look a little bit more similar. Oh, right. So are you saying then that, uh, I mean, in the gut cells of a young person, they know their job is to be a gut cell and that's what they do. But are you saying that in, in someone who's 80, that some of their gut cells are no longer doing the gut cell thing? They just sort of hang around, what, doing nothing? I, I Well, some of them kind of hang around and just excrete <laughs> nasty things. Um, so these are what we call senescent cells, which they're really losing a lot of the original function those cells had. And they're also not dividing. They just kind of, some people refer to them as zombie cells. So they're not dead, they're not alive, and they're just throwing out like inflammatory factors and, and causing damage in their local environment. So yeah, things just don't work the way they were originally quote designed. I'm not, I'm not making assumptions about where the design came from, but originally designed to work. Right, that's interesting. So they, they're not contributing to their general health. It's interesting you say they, they actually give off inflammatory signals because that's another thing that figures in the book quite largely is that inf inflammation isn't just getting a little red spot where you've been stuck by an insect. That, that there's something much more systemically damaging about, am I right, in the sort of a, a low-level but constant inflammation tell us a bit more about that if you would because it but it because it, it's it, it's cropped up in a, quite a lot of the people we've talked to in the last few months yeah so inflammation i mean it's a critical part of our physiology and our biology it's important right for you know any pathogens coming in being able for our body being able to deal with them and it's kind of this stress response that, that should be beneficial but the problem is that you know if our system is not reacting correctly, it can be activated and, and not able to turn off. And, and that's when this kind of chronic low grade, or what we might think of a systemic inflammation ends up being damaging because, you know, you can almost think of it as those superhero movies, right? It's not just attacking the bad guy, but there's a lot of kind of collateral damage that happens along with this. And if it just is continually on, you're going to end up damaging kind of nearby proteins and other cells and things like that. So are you saying that inflammation actually, is it one of the things which contributes to the, the methylation of the DNA getting corrupted and going wrong? So we don't know exactly the causal links of actually what's driving the changes in kind of these DNA methylation of these epigenetic changes that we see. Um, but there is some evidence that there is a link to inflammation, which one comes first or how that kind of links up. I think we, we still need to figure out. That's just interesting because we've talked to a number of people in the last few months who are very concerned about the stress causing inflammation and that causing depression. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, and, but, so it may, it may be that it's not just causing depression, but is actually aging people. Or mm -hmm. Is that the right way of putting it? Or, or accelerating their aging? What would be yeah. the right way of saying that? Yeah, it, it can kind of drive, you know, aging and accelerate it to, an, to a degree, for sure. And, and there's a lot of interest in inflammation in the aging field. Some people think inflammation is the whole reason why we age. I think it's probably a little more complex and broad than that, but it definitely plays a really critical role in kind of driving and accelerating aging. Hmm. Okay. You also talk about the relationship between disease and, and age. And there's a, there's a bit in the book where you say, 
that biological age is actually driving disease, which when you first read it, you think, wait a minute, I must have read that back to front because we always think of it the other way around, don't we? Yeah. Well, tell us what you mean by that because it's slightly counterintuitive. Yeah. So if you look at, basically, if you plotted the, your risk of disease as a function of age, in, in this case, we're talking chronological age because the easiest one to kind of do this on a population level, what you would see is that for the majority of chronic diseases, so things like heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, osteoporosis, you know, any of the major cancer, any of the major killers, it increases exponentially after, let's say, about age 40 over the lifespan. Um, and some people, again, think that, oh, maybe this is just a random chance, right? Every year you roll the dice and you're going to get some increased risk over time. But what uh, biology and science is actually showing us is that the processes that we see that are a part of this biological aging process, so the way our bodies are changing with aging, are actually um, underlying a lot of the pathology of these diseases. So we actually think that our, our biology kind of changing in terms of losing it the way it was originally designed, it's causing dysfunction, which then we see manifest as these various types of diseases. And there's some evidence too, um, mostly in animal models, that if you can actually slow or reverse aging, they, it would actually delay or even prevent incidence of disease. So is it that there's a sort of a, a general degradation of the whole machinery and because it's degrading generally, it's more vulnerable to the onset of these various diseases. Is it, is it also more vulnerable in terms of not being able to repair itself? Yeah, so it's kind of both, right? Like it's degrading in that it's not functioning as well, but also its repair mechanisms aren't functioning as well. So it's kind of this snowballing effect, right? You know, you have damage that's accumulating and the system is also getting worse at dynamically being able to go back and repair that damage. So it just kind of builds up and eventually overwhelms. And we, we get basically a loss of kind of functional fidelity, how our organs and systems were supposed to function. And we, we label that as disease. So it's this dysfunction that we, as a society, have labeled as these different diseases. Interesting. That all sounds terribly depressing. Not only is the machine breaking down, but the, but the janitor who's supposed to fix it has broken down too. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the things that, we can, that people can do to make the janitor work a bit better. Yep. <laughs> so yeah. there's, there was a short list of sort of the major, I mean, they're the, they're the, they're the big chapters in the book of the sort mm -hmm. of areas which you've been looking at. Tell us what they are and then we can, we can deal with them. Yeah, so unfortunately, I might be the bearer of bad news. There's no magic pill right now or no kind of quick fix for slowing or reversing aging. Again, science is actually working on this, so that's not to say that there won't be in our future. But for right now, a lot of this has to do with kind of behaviors, lifestyle, and environmental things. So the things we kind of already know about, right, our, our diet, physical activity, stress, sleep, these all seem to be major things that can either accelerate or potentially decelerate the rate at which we're all kind of aging biologically. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. 
Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Okay, so let's let's deal with diet because yes. I mean, talk about big business. There's always <laughs> some diet which is going to make you ten years younger by next week. Yeah, um, exactly. Do do any of them work? Um, so again, I think this comes back to not it being like a, a diet. I don't like these kind of fad diets or, you know, every week, like you said, there's a new one, right? Oh, now you have to try this type of diet or that type of diet. And they're often completely opposed to exactly. each other as well. It's low carb today and high carb tomorrow. <laughs> and yeah, which one we're supposed to do is completely unknown to all of us. And, and I think this comes back to the idea that kind of what we call like nutritional epidemiology. So studying nutrition in populations of humans is hard. It's hard to know exactly what people are eating and, or to trust that they're telling you that they're eating something, you know, that they didn't have Oreos at 10 PM last night. It's hard to disentangle these because you're not randomizing. You're not for the most part saying, Oh, for 10 years, you guys eat this and you guys eat this and we'll come back and see who did well. So, so a lot of it is, you know, what we call confounded people who tend to eat healthier have other behaviors that are healthier, they tend to have different socioeconomic uh, factors. So it's really hard to do this type of science. But I think the one thing we, I think most people can agree on is eating more whole foods, not these highly processed foods. Plants are probably a beneficial thing to be eating and to limit it. You know, the data from aging research seems to suggest limiting animal products. That's not saying everyone has to be vegan. And I think, you know, for some people that you're going to have different needs on how much protein uh, you need. And, and for me, it's can, you know, find something you can stick to that's as healthy as possible. So again, I'm not telling everyone they have to go do like a raw food diet for the rest of their lives because the vast majority of people cannot maintain something like that. Hmm. You spent a lot of time, oh, well, I was going to move on to fasting, but hold on. Oh, um, yeah. Blue zones. These, these, you mentioned a, a, a small number of places where people just seem to have great longevity. And I think the one in Greece was confounded all the, everybody's theories because they had a lot of animal products as well. Have I got that one right? I can't remember now. Uh, they ate animal products. Not, I wouldn't say a lot of animal products. Yeah, and I think, you know, they're still eating not processed, you know, very much whole foods, probably still a lot of plants. And I think the other thing, which we'll probably get to is, they're mostly physically active. So unlike us, they're not sitting at desks for eight hours a day, staring at a computer screen or doing whatever we do all day. Um, so yeah, I think the thing with these blue zones are, for, for those who haven't heard of them, they're these areas where people seem to have exceptional longevity. So you have a kind of more likely chance of seeing people living to 100 or, or beyond in these regions. And it doesn't, some people say, oh, maybe it's genetic, like there's some genetic pool there, but the data suggests it's probably more lifestyle because even people born there who leave actually seem to lose some of the kind of longevity advantage. So there is something really interesting. There's whole kind of groups, uh, scientists and research groups that are looking into, can we figure out what's special about these different areas? All right. Thank you. Fasting. Yes. You spend quite a lot of time a slightly worrying amount of time <laughs> talking about the, the benefits of fasting. And as someone who likes three meals a day, I thought, oh dear, this is, this is dreadful. Tell us about fasting. Yeah. So actually um, 
the whole talk on fasting and aging longevity actually stemmed from something that that might be even less appealing to people, which is the idea of caloric restriction. Um, so caloric restriction is not malnutrition. It's not starving yourself, but it is eating at a deficit to what we would consider your basal metabolic rate needs. And this was discovered over a hundred years ago. Uh, I think the first study is in rats where they basically found, Oh, if they don't eat as much, they live longer. And then, you know, since then people have looked at this in yeast flies, other, you know, rodents and more recently in monkeys. And now they have um, these trials in humans. And I, I think the, the one issue with caloric restriction, even though it's a, a really kind of cornerstone of longevity interventions is that most people are not going to be able to maintain caloric restriction for the entirety of their life, or I would even say a few years. So researchers actually became very interested in the concept of fasting, thinking that, well, maybe they don't have to constantly have this kind of, you know, slight deprivation or deficit in calories, but people could intermittently, you know, it's, it's easier for a few hours to deprive yourself than it is for, for decades. Um, so have a late dinner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. If you know, you know, in 10 hours, I'm going to get to eat, you know, something really delicious. You can, you can kind of have the willpower versus, oh, I'm just going to continuously be hungry forever. But yeah, does so that work? Idea. Does this does this intermittent fasting? Because you you talk about people sort of fasting for two days out of a week, or and mm-hmm. and does it work? Um, so the initial evidence suggests that there are probably benefits to it. I think we don't know if it's just because it actually helps people consume less calories over a whole day. And I think to the exact type of fasting regimens that are more beneficial, we don't know that yet. So yeah, there's different ways you can do it. Some people will just see, yeah, we'll fast for one or two days out of the week. Some people restrict the time in which they're eating within every kind of every single 24 hour period. There are other people um, or regimens where maybe just three months out of the year, you do these short five day fast. They're not even a full water fast or just a very low calorie fast. And I think, you know, as science continues, we'll get a better sense of which ones are the most beneficial, which ones people can actually do and don't mind doing and, and how this actually is related to all the kind of decades worth of research in caloric restriction, whether it is mimicking the same thing that you would get in caloric restriction. Hmm. So, I mean, there's a difference then between eating whole foods, avoiding highly processed food, but then also just not eating anything. I mean, is, is this, has anyone looked at, because when you talk about processed foods, you think about sort of fast food outlets who should remain nameless because they're very litigious. But I mean, even in, in if you just went to the supermarket in America and bought beef, it's full of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And the chicken has been washed in chlorine. Yeah. So is is it that these things are just naturally bad for you or is it that the versions that you can get of these things in supermarkets are bad for you? I think we don't know and that's a really important question, right? Because yeah, it could be that it's the way that we generate the food that is kind of mass produced and and available widely to people and not necessarily the exact components that are we're in the kind of food that maybe are not too distant ancestors ate. So, mm. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, right? Where we didn't have all of these issues. And 
Yeah, so I think we, I am a big proponent for rethinking about how our food is grown and distributed and, you know, made. yeah, all of these things are things we need to consider. Hmm. All right. So that's whether how much you eat and what you, the kind of thing you eat, exercise, the, the, the bit of living. Well, actually, I'd rather exercise more than just be hungry. Yeah. Because when you talk about caloric restriction, that sounds to me like a scientific way of avoiding saying you'll be hungry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, if you say nice you can have two extra years of life as long as for 50 years you're hungry, that just doesn't yeah. sound great. Exactly. And I think people should, you know, for some people, they really want to do every, anything it takes, right, for that extra, who knows, year. I've actually asked a few people who do caloric restriction how much if you, you know, if you're projecting how much you're going to get from this, what would have made it worth it? And I think, you know, they all have a different answer, but you know, for a lot of them, it's not one year, right? It's, they're really hoping they're going to get at least a decade um, <laughs> or something like that. And yeah, for some of them, it's worth it. For other people, they, they don't care that I don't even want, you know, I want to smoke and have my pint of beer and just enjoy. And then I'm out and that's, everyone has their kind of prerogative. And I think it's up to science to kind of tell people statistically what different things will buy them and then they can kind of make the choice. But exercise is another one, which I think, you know, has, is really powerful in terms of slowing our rate of aging and, you know, is actually seems to be beneficial almost to anyone and at any kind of physiological state. So even people who we think of as very frail and kind of the latest kind of portions of their life seem to still benefit from obviously at some point supervised physical activity, mm -hmm. but um, it doesn't seem too late to still get a benefit. And I, I always joke that if, you know, they could bottle the effects of exercise, it would be like you, you'd win a Nobel. It'd be like the most revolutionary kind of anti-aging therapeutic you could imagine. And but do we know why exercise? I mean, there's the obvious one. Obviously, it's good for your heart and your circulation. Mm -hmm. But but is that is that it? I mean, the, the kind of large effect that you're talking about would seem that it would have to have effects more than just on your heart and circulation. But is that, do we know? Yeah, I don't think we know. We don't know, like, mechanistically, like, to, in terms of the cells and molecules in your body, what is happening? We don't, I don't even think we really know the timing at which the benefit happens, right? Are you... Hmm. Is this remodeling and benefit happening during, probably not during the exercise? And it seems to be this kind of after exercise state, but we still don't even understand dynamically how that is working. And there's, there's really interesting stuff showing the effects of, on your brain, which is not, you know, an organ or a system that you would directly think would be affected by exercise. Um, no, it's not very muscly. Yeah, exactly. You don't think you're, you, if anything, you think you kind of zone off and kind right. of turn your brain off while you're actually. But, it, but, well, it, but it, it has effects on the brain. Are you, do you mean yeah. psychological effects or actually effects on the brain as an organ? Um, I mean, there's, there's evidence that it decreases risk of things like dementia. And actually, probably for me, one of the most exciting um, studies was actually by a colleague of mine at UC San Francisco named Saul Valida, where they basically took serum from mice that they made exercise and injected it into other mice and the mice who got the the exercise serum had better memory and kind of cognitive oh this is the young blood thing yeah 
yeah. I found that very worrying because <laughs> I had just had visions of, of yeah. I was going to say of harvesting blood well, from these children. I was going to say someone's name, and I thought maybe that would be unwise politically from, from a legal point of view. Several billionaires whose names might be familiar to people watching. I could imagine them hiring a whole village of people to run around and flog themselves to death, and then just siphon off their serum, and in some ghoulish kind of vampiric way, be twenty years younger. And what you're saying is that that would be possible. Um, yeah, I would. I would not be proponent of that exact <laughs> paradigm. Um, no, no, I wasn't accusing yes, you. <laughs> and actually, I think uh, there's a TV show here in the states called Silicon Valley where there's actually the billionaire has a blood boy and he like brings <laughs> around and like tells him what he's. You're kidding to me, really? Yeah. So there, there are <laughs> kind of satires of this. Um, yes, but, but what you're saying is it's not a satire. This is a distinct possibility. Uh, I hope, yeah, I hope the blood boy thing is not a possibility, but, you know, the idea is if we can identify the factors that are actually responsible for this, we don't need to take them from other young human beings. We can, you know, engineer them or figure out exactly how to deal with this without involving, you know, innocent lives. (laughs) (laughs) So in other words, you'd be able to isolate the actual enzymes that or the proteins or the cell signaling and then presumably Mm -hmm. generate those in a lab from from cells or engineered microbes and then just harvest them and take it as a as a like a nutrient you know yeah yeah. if if you can identify the factors that are driving this benefit then you could turn them into a therapeutic um, without needing to have a bunch of people in the back room exercising all day do we know any of the of these um, factors yet? Uh, so in that study, they did identify one factor that they thought was important, but I think you know it's probably going to end up being a little bit more complex. I I would bet my money that it's not going to be one factor. Right? It's going to be you know exercise is this really dynamic. It, it involves so much, and there's so much feedback in our our body systems that you know I can't imagine it comes down to like one little thing that. Mm explains everything in terms of the benefit. And also, I mean, you come to this at the end of the book, you talk about a couple of things like rapamycin. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of the factors you're talking about, but then you, you reveal that it's also an immunosuppressant. So mm-hmm. if, you were, if you said, right, give me a whole vial full of that stuff and merrily inject it into yourself, you'd probably get a cold and die the next day. Yeah, so so rather, yeah. It's, like you say, it's never that you can't just get it these chemicals don't do one thing in the body, do they? Exactly. And that's, I think that's the problem with our, with kind of biomedical research, right? Is we're always looking for this one factor that we think has the one target, but, you know, biology is so complex and so many things are doing, you know, they're all multitaskers. So, you know, we need to really understand our systems more before we try and intervene or even before we really know how to intervene. So that's why things like, these behaviors or lifestyle factors where we're not in there poking and prodding, we're using our system. Our system knows how to respond to things. So you say, you know, exercise, the system knows how to respond, what things to upregulate, downregulate in that response. So I think that's why those are working much better than kind of the magic bullet or, you know, some pill that's coming out of the lab. Right. You also talk about sleep and and, and that's connected to back to stress and, and inflammation. 
you don't spend a lot of time on it, but but you do point out that modern life just seems to be weighted against the simple restorative of sleep. Yeah, I mean, it's something I personally will say I struggle with in terms of, you know, all of my health behaviors, I would say that would be the one I would say I need to do better at. Um, and the problem also is we, you know, again, the data comes out differently. You know, one time they say, oh, seven hours is the right amount of sleep. Another, they say, oh, no, maybe nine. We don't know how much sleep each of us needs. And it's probably different for every person. And, and unless you're like someone who's really monitoring your sleep with the, you know, the ring or the watch or something, we probably don't actually know how much sleep we're truly getting and, and in which of the different kind of sleep cycles where, you know, how much time we spend in each one. But I think for a lot of us, yeah, in our society, the way it's structured, we're probably not getting the amount of sleep or even the quality of sleep that we need. And there does seem to be very good evidence that sleep, again, uh, going back to the brain, does have an effect on potentially brain aging or risk of developing some of these kind of dementia related pathologies. Does it, is, is the effect sort of marginal, one or 2%, or is it quite important? Because, you know, I, I remember going to university with people who sort of said, oh, I'm just going to have four hours sleep a night and, and, and do super well at everything else. And, you know, as far as he was concerned, whatever effect sleep had, it was so marginal, it didn't matter. Is that true or is sleep more important than we think? Uh, it's probably more important than we think, but it's really hard again to say how important it is because a lot of this is, again, based on observational data where you have to rely on the fact that you know how much people are sleeping or that they're reporting whether they're wake, waking up and having trouble going back to sleep. And then, you know, you have to link that to actual health outcomes down the road. Um, so it's really hard for a lot of these lifestyle factors to either do like a kind of the gold standard clinical trial for them or to really assess causality. Because the other issue with sleep that we don't know is whether people who are suffering from more health conditions are actually just getting worse sleep. And therefore it looks like worse sleep or less sleep is linked to, you know, disease, but it, it could go the other way around. So hmm. yeah, we're, we're not entirely sure, but Clearly sleep is important physiologically because we've evolved to need sleep and it is important to our functioning. And you can see what depri really deprived sleep does to physiology and it's pretty traumatic. Yeah, and I mean, natural selection has gone out of its way to allow animals to sleep, even allowing them to have one half of their brain sleep while the other one carries on flying. And yeah. <laughs> sort of nutty. So, I mean, natural selection realizes sleep is very important. Otherwise yes. it wouldn't go to such lengths. But I mean, one of the, one of the things which you just mentioned in passing, but it was fascinating is you just say quite early on, look, where all these animals are made of the same tissue. Mm -hmm. And what is it? 85% of our human protein coding genes are the same as in the mouse, but we live 40 times as long. Yeah. So it's the, and then the Greenland shark, you said, which again, it's made of the same tissues. Yeah. It lives 300 years. So, so there's a lot of scope for the actual machinery that we're made of to live, you know, six months or 80 years. So there yeah. is something going on. I mean, why don't mice live to be 80? If they're made yeah. of almost the same stuff. 
Exactly. So it's it's, it's not as if they stay really up late and, and take drugs, is it? I mean, mice live a quite quiet life. They're not burning the candle at both ends, you know. And- yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of people interested in this kind of comparative biology question. Like you, you know, the biggest, the reason we know chronological aging is not, you know, the thing that's driving disease is really because of this, right? You can see across species, the aging rate is hugely variable. And as you said, some live a few weeks, some live, you know, a few centuries. And again, we're all made of the same kind of elements and kind of mostly have very similar uh, genetics. And really what we think it is, is how much through evolution, how much investment was basically put on offsetting kind of the natural kind of dysregulation and decline that you would see in a complex system. So in order to kind of make sure that the individuals could reach kind of an age at which they could reproduce and make sure that their offspring could survive to an age in which they can reproduce, we've evolved to kind of say, okay, you need to maintain the system up until this point, but you're not going to evolve to maintain it past that point because there's no pressure to do it. Mm. And so we really, there's kind of this life history paradigm that's really, we think, dictating differences in lifespan across species. Fair enough. I mean, that makes sense. But nevertheless, the poor old mouse is made from most of the same stuff as you, but you get to live to be 80 or 90 and the mouse conks out after two years. The system wasn't programmed to maintain it. So it just lets it, or at least, you know, to a lesser extent, right? So it's just allowed to degrade. But the good news for mice is if they could figure out how the stuff they're made of is used and regulated differently in us, then they Mm -hmm. could live a long time. Yeah. And, and if that's true for them, then we could figure out how the Greenland shark is doing it and live 300 years, God forbid. But <laughs> Yeah, hypothe- so yeah, this is, I think, what people have really been interested in studying these really long-lived uh, species. The one thing, again, comes back to this idea of these genes or, or products are doing lots of different things. So it, it could be that there are other features of the Greenland shark that also is, you know, shared with the longevity, whatever that mechanism is. And you know, for me, and there's other long-lived species, so like tortoises, I, I wouldn't adopt a tortoise life in order to live, you know, 150 years or whatever it may be. So, you know, there might be some things right. that we're also endowed with that are kind of, you know, a, that you might have to give up to, to get this other benefit too. I don't know. Um, again, it's speculation, but uh, in genetics, we call this pleiotropy so genes are important for more than one kind of trait we're going to have to get on to questions very soon because there are a million of them but what's happened to stem cells because 20 years ago there was a there was a great you know interest in stem cells and they said you know we can figure out how to return cells back to the the age where they could repair themselves and we're all going to live to be 120 what happened yeah so i think you know Back a, a while ago, the interest in stem cells was, oh, you know, we're losing stem cells and we just need to make sure we can replenish that. We data. should tell people what stem cells are. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Uh, so there's different kinds of stem cells. So usually stem cells are cells that can, what we call differentiate, so turn into different cell types. And there are ones that can differentiate to any cell type, then you can, you know, kind of move up and there are ones that are more specific and they can, let's say, become the blood cells or, or there's ones in our brain that can populate um, into brain cells. 
Uh, now there is a huge interest in STEM in the biology that's linked to stem cells in the aging field. And this really came about in, I think it was 2007, a uh, scientist named Chinya Yamanaka discovered four factors, so four genes that if you express them in a cell, you can take, an, let's say a skin cell, even from someone who's 80 years old, and convert it back to what looks like an embryonic stem cell. And actually when we measured this epigenetic um, signature, it looks like it's age zero, even though it measured, let's say age 80 before. So people in aging science are actually really interested in this, um, not because we want to turn our body into a bunch of stem cells, because again, you want your cell specificity. This is an important thing. But what happens is actually the aging kind of pattern seems to be what's reversed first before the cell shifts to a stem cell, to a stem state. Oh, right. So they think, okay, maybe there's a way to just push it a little bit. So you now have let's say an old skin cell or an old brain cell, and it's just a younger version of that same cell type. Um, and there's a lot of interest in my lab's working on this, other labs are working on this to understand this program um, and how this is working. But then not to push it all the way back so it becomes an embryonic stem cell. Exactly. Then, then you get cancer problems. Yeah, exactly. Then the cells will differentiate. They don't know what they're really supposed to become. And that you get these nasty, what are called teratomas, which yes. are- I've seen those, they're funky old things. Yeah, you don't want those in your body. No, they're, they're I saw, I saw one in a, in, a, in a bottle, and when you opened it up, it had teeth and hair. Yeah, it was all, yeah, Quite exactly. It's all different types of cells that are very yeah. confused about what they're supposed to be. Yeah, I don't want my cells to be confused. Yeah. I'd rather be old than confused. Yeah, exactly. I'd rather have an old liver than a, than one that sprouts a liver made teeth. out of teeth. Yes. <laughs> all right, listen, we'll have to get on to because, uh, yeah, there's okay. 5,000 questions here. Which region of the world has the least antibiotic stroke chlorine in the natural food? So oh, I mean, that's, the, that's above my favorite. Okay, I, I can answer that. I mean, the, okay. the, the antibiotics and the chlorine is specifically North America. You, Europe, whether you love it or loathe it, has very, very much higher um, food safety standards. And if there are any lawyers mm -hmm. listening, kiss my behind. It's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so... So on diet, is organic better? Uh, so it probably depends. Again, uh, I think people can get away with calling things organic, even if they're, you know, Not, yeah. <laughs> I would say grown in your backyard is probably better. Like as or And I think, you know, the other thing we have to think about that I, I don't think I even mentioned the book and we didn't talk about is microplastics, right? Like there are all these yeah. things, like how do you even get away from them? They're not even regulated. And there are, yeah. so organic isn't inherently better, but it's probably a little bit better. Okay. Yes. Microplastics is a whole other nightmare, <laughs> yeah, which has sorry. not hit the headlines yet. So Charles says, regarding fasting, Dr. Sarah Hamid thought that there were no benefits to fasting. Is, are there lots of conflicting opinions about fasting? There are conflicting opinions. There are some studies suggesting there's benefits to fasting. There are other people who say, oh, it's just the antithesis to overeating, right? So maybe it's just, you know, you're not having obesity. Uh, and I, I think this is where the science needs to play out. And we have to have more rigorous studies into really understanding what's going on with fasting, how it affects us at a cellular molecular level, and whether there is actually types of fasting fasting regimens that are beneficial to us. Mm, okay, thank you. 
That is an interesting one from Mr. Anonymous, who's written a lot of them. What would you advise to people who aren't interested in longevity as much as a longer, healthier, active life? Is the recipe the same for both? Yes. So, so I think this is an important question. I don't think we touched on the idea of health span versus lifespan. So health span is kind of this time you are alive without, you know, major chronic disease. I'm not talking about people who are born with disease um, that they have zero health span, but yeah, health, having healthy long life. And I would say that's the only way that we should be approaching longevity. None of us wants, you know, to live an extra 20 or 30 years suffering from very debilitating conditions. I mean, we might change our mind once we're there, but <laughs> for the most part, the idea is to extend the time we're healthy and that ultimately that will probably extend lifespan, but that should be the major goal. Yes, okay. Um, and, and that was the excitement with stem cells when it started 20 odd years ago, as they said, rather than live 20 years in a sort of chronically unwell you, mm-hmm. you just want to have 15 of those years still feeling healthy yeah and that, that's the idea with aging right you just slow down the aging process so you're going to spend more time in a healthier state okay thank you um what role does mental health play in longevity and how would you weigh the importance of say medication vis-a-vis the benefits is exercise sleep diet or is it a combination so yeah Yeah, so mental health seems to play a critical role. I mean, we know there's a huge mind-body connection, and we know that people who, you know, tend to be afflicted with things like depression or these other kind of um, mental health problems tend to present more physiologically unwell. And again, it's the causal links and how this is actually manifesting, we don't know. There has been a lot of studies into stress and how different kind of mental health stress responses can actually accelerate things like inflammation. I think you mentioned in the beginning or these other kind of processes that might drive aging. Mm. Okay. Kate wants to know, what's your view on supplements? I presume Um, the little supplements you get from the chemist. Yeah. So um, I might be different from a lot of my fellow scientists in, in aging field. I do not take supplements. I don't feel like there's good enough evidence that any of them are actually being are beneficial to the aging process yet. And I maybe am someone less more risk adverse than some of my, my colleagues who are willing to try lots of these things, even though I think they're unproven. So for me, I mean, I take a B vitamin and a multivitamin and that's the extent of my supplement and drug regimen. Okay. Um, Related, it's anonymous again, saying, I take melatonin every night. Am I overdosing? (laughs) Uh, So I think the science is saying that actually chronically taking it is not going to be beneficial for sleep. I mean, they suggest that, you know, if you need it because you're jet lagged or there's some other thing that is beneficial, but I think there's, you know, even some of the cognitive behavioral therapy seems to be a better route if you're suffering from things like insomnia. Okay. It's again, similar. What do you think of the use of antioxidant vitamins and anti-inflammatory medicines? Crikey, we've got them all in. Yeah. Um, so there is a huge debate in the field that actually think people don't think antioxidants are beneficial at all in terms of aging and, and don't, there's I, one of my colleagues, Vadim Gladyshev says, you know, the free radical theory and this whole idea of oxidative stresses completely unimportant for aging. Um, so I would say, 
there's no evidence that they're beneficial. Anti-inflammatory, I think, depends what your, which, which I don't, yeah. But the thing is, we need some, in, exactly. if you were completely no anti-inflammatory, if you had zero response, you would be dead by the end of the week. Yeah, so our, our <laughs> immune, yeah, exactly. Our innate and adaptive immune system is very critical to our survival. And actually, there's some evidence that, you know, in rodents or other, like, very calorically restricted animals, that they actually lose some of their immune capacity. They have poor wound healing if they actually do get an infection, they don't do as well. So yeah, it's just kind of balanced. You don't want an overreactive immune system. You want it, it's this, you want a Goldilocks kind of level mm. immune system. <laughs> um, that is interesting. What about the importance of social relations? They seem to be a key component in the lives in the blue zone inhabitants. Yeah. Do you think they have a real impact on aging? That's an interesting one. Yeah, so I think this goes back to the kind of mental health, right? So social engagement, there is data, again, observational data, not understanding causality, that yes, we're, we're social creatures. And it's, you know, very important for our mental stability and, and health to be social. Again, not everyone, right? Some people do better not being overly social. But yeah, I think having engagement, having support from epidemiological data seems to be beneficial for health. And the blue zones seem to actually share this kind of quality. But it's one of the things that you say in the book is you, you stress over and over again, look, people age at very different rates and they age in different ways. Like one person's mm -hmm. liver may age quickly, whereas another person's heart's aging more quickly. And you put a lot of store in saying, look, if you want to do something about it, then you need to monitor mm -hmm. your biological aging. And I mean, do you think, I mean, you're quite bullish about it in the book. Do you really think this is something that people ought to do, that they ought to be monitoring themselves on an ongoing way? Yeah, I think we don't know exactly. Do the, you? Do you do it? I do. Not. I mean, I'm not going out every month and monitoring myself. I probably do it every six months to a year just, you know, to get a sense. But it's the same thing. Like, if you want to lose weight, you're going to weigh yourself. I mean, mm. Some people say don't weigh yourself right and you're better off. But uh, um, in general, right, if you want to actually work towards modifying something, you need to know where you are and where you stand in terms of the thing you want to modify. I will say that our measures of biological age are not perfect. They're continually evolving. I do think they're better than nothing, right? So they're more informative than not knowing at all. Um, but people shouldn't put so much emphasis or so much weight on any single measure, but they're, they're more to give you an overall kind of estimate of how well you're doing generally. And I think continuously monitoring will give you a better sense of that. Hmm. But I, I don't want people like chasing a rabbit, right? That number like is always like, oh, I did exactly this and got this number. So now I'm going to go this direction. Yep. Um, oh, now we're getting down to it. Uh, it's anonymous again. <laughs> Is red wine good or bad? Now, I, I reckon everyone wants to know the answer to this. Yeah. And the answer is? Uh, the newest data suggests that any alcohol is not, like any increase in alcohol is, is at least somewhat detrimental. So, and red wine is not special in that. I know there's some scientists. There's very good research coming out of France suggesting the opposite. Yes. <laughs> I know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, they do tend to live longer. Um, yeah, so resveratrol was like a big thing, but I think the more recent science is not super supportive of red wine being beneficial to health. 
But again, if it increases sociability and that benefits, right? It's all this in isolation. Oh, is your stress? Equal. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's hard in science, right? We, we try to isolate the effect of one thing. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, are the, Sue asks, are there any ways of encouraging healthy cells to grow in diseased organs? Ah, that's interesting. One. Yeah, great question. Uh, this is something we and other scientists are very interested in. So, I mean, we t- I talked about the idea of you have a biological age, but technically all your cells are at a different kind of biological age themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in someone who's quite old, they're going to have some cells that look younger and some cells that look older. They have this heterogeneity. And is there a way, so evolution doesn't select for the young ones to do better, but is there a way that we can artificially select within an organ uh-huh. or the ones that we actually scientifically can show will be beneficial? Um, and I think we don't know how to do this yet, but that would be um, kind of the goal. Interesting. Mm, okay. So th- 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 you might be, this would get us back to cell signaling again, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I think, you know, th- we have a lot of diversity, even among cells of the same hypothetical type. And how do you kind of give this advantage to the ones that would be beneficial for the whole versus, you know, what we think you see in like cancer, where you actually get these problematic or deleterious ones get the selective advantage and then they expand and kind of take over. It's sort of the opposite of the the idea of trying to tackle cancers by switching on the cell death program, the apoptosis mm-hmm. program. So you, you switch that because that's often switched off in cancer. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. If you could switch it on, the cancer cell would go, good Lord, I'm a cancer cell and just, and just do away with itself very handily. So this would be the opposite, wouldn't it? It would be yep. trying to give the signals which would promote the growth of the young cells. Yeah, or, or I mean, there's some really cool research. I think uh, people like my colleague James DeGregori show that actually the cancer-causing mutations are arising all the time, even in young individuals with young tissue, but they don't take over because they're competing with these healthy, oh. you know, the environment is different in a young person than an old person. So how do you maintain that environment that can still outcompete the cancer cells? That's fascinating. So yeah, it's all these, you know, there are so many, there are lots of variables happening at the same time. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, if you can drive kind of selection or give advantage to certain populations of cells, uh, this can end up being very beneficial. Hmm, okay. Is there a US equivalent of the UK biobank with long-term research into all the areas of large number of the population? Um, there is not to the same degree. So UK biobank is very... Tell us about UK biobank because lots of people, yeah. know, me included, I have to say. So UK biobank is this very large study. I think, I don't even actually know how many people there are, like at least half a million, if not a million now where, you know, initially I think set up to understand genetics of complex diseases. Um, so they, they collected genetic data on these people and they followed them over time. So they know who develops what disease, they collect blood panels. Now they're doing things even like brain imaging on individuals. Um, but yeah, it's hundreds of thousands, if not closer to millions of people in these data sets. In the US, we have similar things, but smaller scale, nothing that large, although there are things like million veterans uh, programs. So there are some that they're trying to develop. Um, but then we also have these long standing studies. Uh, so the health and retirement study is one that 
has about 30,000 people they've followed since the early 90s. But yeah, these large cohort studies are where lots of this data on lifestyle and all these other things are coming out. Hmm. I mean, one thing which we haven't talked about, obviously it's a whole other thing, but we can mention it is the effects of poverty, because it's all very well saying, well, we should have lifestyle choices, but some people don't have that many choices in their yeah. lifestyle. Um, and now I'm thinking of the, the, the massive British study, Whitehall too, which was very, very mm-hmm. clear that yeah. not just poverty, but the kind of the hopelessness which goes with poverty I, was, a, was a very large determinant in, how, in people's life expectancy. Is that still true? Is that part of, of, of the mix of stuff that you look at? Yeah, it's absolutely true. I think, you know, socioeconomic status probably dwarfs a lot of these lifestyle things. The problem is on an individual level, it's not modifiable, right, To mm-hmm. for the most part, for most people. Um, and so, you know, it's really difficult on how, you know, this is kind of something you have to tackle as a society. You can't really put on, well, you should slow your aging by, you know, getting more economic resources. You can't tell people. No that um and and we had to decide as a society that we kind of want to close the gap in terms of these uh health disparities and social disparities which i think you know it suggests that the lowest tier of socioeconomic status lives about 10 years shorter than the upper tier and that that's equivalent to the difference between a non-smoker and a smoker so this has a very dramatic effect and i know at least in the u.s just based on someone's zip code they were born into, you can make a pretty good prediction on how long they'll live. And so, yeah, I, I, I think when talking about aging and what's on the horizon, we need to also keep in mind that you don't want to just help, you know, the select few at the top. And actually our biggest improvement as a population would be to bring everyone up to, kind of, and probably perhaps slightly easier than getting people who are already living to, 90 to 120 is getting the people who die at 50 or 60 or 70 up to 90. And we have to make the decision to do that as a population. Yeah. yeah. We're almost out of time, but there's one very important question, which has just come in from Sue. Very important. Does dark chocolate have good health benefits? Uh, I don't know, but I'm going to say yes, because oh, thank goodness. I loved dark chocolate. <laughs> and yeah, so all we'll right, just go with that. I, I want to give a glimmer of hope to people. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> the wine the wine got the thumbs down. We at least yeah. have to have some dark chocolate, otherwise we'll just exactly. give up. Um, listen, uh, <laughs> Morgan, thanks so much for chatting to us. Um, it's Absolutely. been great. I wish we had more time because there are thousands more questions <laughs> we just haven't got to. So my apologies to all of you who didn't get, but we did make a heroic effort to answer yeah. them all. I'm on Twitter if people want to ask me questions on there, though, so... That's very nice of you. Listen, Morgan, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, David. This episode starred Dr. Morgan Levine and was presented by David Malone. The producer was Luke Naylor Perrett, and the series is made by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>